you everyone for the opportunity to, to speak to you this evening. Let's take our Bibles and go to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, our topic this evening, worship in spirit and truth. Of course, the, the whole of this series throughout the summer is on truth, and you've already been a part of some of those. And now we come to this uh, very important passage in the Word of God, which uh, says so much concerning our worship and that our worship must be in truth. So our primary focus is worship in truth, but we want to take this phrase that Jesus said, he repeated it twice, worship in spirit and in truth. Our focus is truth, but we need to to see what he says also about spirit. So here in John chapter 4, Jesus is conversing with this woman. And we enter more towards the end of the the conversation. As a matter of fact, there seems to be a little bit of a topical shift that happens here. Jesus has just uh, confronted her uh, with her need. He has spoken to her about her sin. And we discover, it's very clear in the passage, she is a sexually broken woman. And um, probably feeling a little uncomfortable to be talking about her sexual brokenness with a man. And so that she tries to change the topic, but in verse 19, she rightly perceives, she says, sir, you are a prophet. And of course, she rightly perceived that because he was a prophet. He is a prophet. And he was such a prophet that he knew exactly what her condition was. And then in verse 20, she makes a a statement, but I would suggest to you that the statement she makes is actually an implied question. There's no question mark there, but it's, it's a question in the form of a, state, a statement. She says, verse 19, Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Here's the statement. Our fathers, that is the Samaritans, worshipped on this mountain. The mountain is called Gerizim, where Jacob's well is, where Jesus sat down with her to eat or to drink. Then he adds, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. You see here immediately that the concern of the woman is the where of worship. Are we Samaritans, right? Is it supposed to be Gerizim, this mountain? Or, Or is it the mount in Jerusalem called Zion where you Jews claim we must worship? Where, where, where really is the right place? Did something just happen? It, yeah, I, it was perfect before for me. Thank you. Thank you. I, can't read my, I can read my notes now. Thank you very much. Her concern is the where of worship. Now, in the passage which Pastor Ken read, you will notice that the word worship or worshiper is used ten times. It's clearly the theme in this portion of John chapter 4. Her concern is the where of worship, but in Jesus' answer to her, his focus is not on the where of worship, but on the who of worship and the how of worship. And this is, in my opinion, apart from portions of the book of Hebrews, the most definitive and clearest passage in the New Testament on the subject of worship. Now, I want to make three observations. Now, you need to understand that the observations I make have nothing to do with my message tonight. So the three observations get added on to the time that's been allotted to me. (laughs) I want to make three observations. And Michael was so nice and gracious to extend to me three hours to speak tonight, Ken, so thank you. But I want to make three observations from this passage before we, we dig into it. And the first is about the importance of true worship. Look, notice verse 23 and 24. A time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers, okay, the true worshipers. Now that implies that worship is important. It also implies that there's a thing called false worship. True worshipers will, he says, worship future tense. Then, in verse 4, God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. They will worship, they must worship. The importance of true worship. Listen, 
Jesus is making it clear that true worship is not just a desirable option. Worship in truth, that is. Worship in spirit and in truth is not just a desirable option for the Christian. It is an absolute necessity for us. So, true worshipers, meaning there are false worshipers. Meaning there's the good and there's the bad. There is that which is acceptable to God in worship and that which is not acceptable to God in worship. This has nothing to do with sincerity. It has everything to do with what God says is true worship and what is not. Now, this should not surprise us at all because in the opening chapters of the Bible, after the fall of Adam and Eve into sin and mankind in itself falls in totality into sin, the first story we have in Genesis 4 is, between, is about Cain and Abel, the, the sons of Adam and Eve. And it's a story about worship. And Cain brings his offering and Abel brings his. And Cain's offering is not acceptable to God, but Abel's is. One was true worship. One was acceptable worship. The other was not. And so we see right there in Genesis 4, at the beginning of the human race, beginning to, mul to multiply, fallen into sin, we see that the first division of humanity has nothing to do with race or ethnicity or politics. It has everything to do with religion, with worship. That's how humanity divides in the eyes of the living God those who worship truly and those who do not. Now, we could, we could follow this theme all through the Old Testament writings, but when we get to the Lord Jesus, for example, in Mark chapter 7 and Matthew chapter 15, both Mark and Matthew record Jesus' words where he criticizes the Jews, his own people, and he says this, quoting from Isaiah, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. There it is. There's true worship, and there is that which is not. Second observation. True worship is the result of the coming of Jesus Christ. Christ's coming produces true worship. Verse 21, the time is coming. A time is coming. Verse 23, yet a time is coming and has now come. True worship is the result of the coming of Christ. This, the, these, these expressions of Jesus, a time is coming, a time is coming and has now, has now come, remind us of Paul's words in Galatians 4, when the time had fully come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem thus all of us who were under the law. And Jesus said, a time is coming and has now come. Now, what did he mean? Well, look at verse 25. The woman said, I, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus declared, the one who speaks to you, I who speak to you, am he. The result of Christ's coming is true worship. And this, in many ways, actually reminds us of what, what the writer to the Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 10. When he, when he talks about the fact that Christ has come, that Christ is the true priest, that Christ is the tabernacle himself, that all of the offerings are, are wrapped up in Christ, he says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and a living way, open for us through the curtain, that is his body, Christ's body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God. Let us worship God, he says, with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the, the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus is this turning point in history. It's this watershed moment in terms of true worship and false worship. Because as a result of Christ's coming, hearts are changed and that always produces worship. And to just go back to the book of Hebrews for a moment, the writer of the Hebrews is telling us that, that all of this stuff that happened in the past, the tabernacle, the temple, the, the, the priests, the, the offerings, the sacrifices, the altar, the, 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 the consecrated bread on the table, all of these were pointing to Christ. They were leading us to Christ so that all of those acts of worship find their fulfillment in Jesus. A time is coming, has now come in Jesus when all of those things of the past foreshadowed in copies and shadows 
in Old Testament worship find their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm really jumping ahead of myself because that's one of my points later, so you don't have to pay me for that. I'm giving it to you ahead of time. Number two, or number three, true worship is the fruit of God's grace. Look at verse 24. God is spirit. Sorry, it's verse 23. For they are the kinds of worshipers the Father seeks. Those who worship in spirit and truth, the Father seeks. You see, the true worship is the fruit of God's grace. And the Samaritan woman is, is simply an illustration. She's simply an illustration of the Father seeking a sinner to become a true worshiper. And he, the Father seeks this true worshiper through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, those are the three observations. Now, I just want to point out now that Jesus says that there are two components to true worship. And they are worship in spirit and in truth. The phrase is found in verse 23 and verse 24. So let's, let's talk for a moment about what it means to worship in spirit. Worship in spirit. I believe the context helps us here. Again, going back to verse 20, the implied question that the woman asks is about the place of worship. It's about where. And in verse 22, Jesus then responds to her, and he contrasts or compares how the Jews worship and how the Samaritans worship. Notice what he says, verse 22. Time is coming. Sorry, I'm at verse 23. Verse 22. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now, the context there is, 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 is a context that takes us back 700 years before Christ. Because you remember when Israel became a divided nation, you had Israel and Judah, and the Israel, the northern part, was taken away into captivity initially by the Assyrians. It destroyed them as a nation. And then Judah later was taken away into captivity. The the Babylonians took them away. And at the end of the 70 years of captivity, the people of Judah came back to the Promised Land, and what they found there were the Jews that had remained had now intermingled and intermarried with the pagan peoples that the Babylonians and the Assyrians had brought into the land to populate the land. And so you had a mixed, you had a mixed race of people at this point in time. That's who the Samaritans were. Now, in John chapter 4, verse, verse 3, um, or verse verse 4, it says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. And um, the passage then goes on to tell, tell us that the Jews have no dealings with them. So there was this division, and many people think it was just simply a racial one. But it, it actually was, was not racial in its origin, because Israel, we know, had incorporated other peoples into their nation. When, when, when Israel left Egypt under Moses, there were a whole pile of Egyptians who went with them, who embraced the one true and living God. And they were incorporated into the household of Israel. They became a part of the different Israelite tribes. And we know, for example, in the book of Ruth, that Ruth was from Moab, and she married Boaz, and, and, uh, and she was incorporated in, even in her marriage vows. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. We don't use those words anymore in marriage vows, but we should. There was a true conversion that had taken place. So it wasn't that the, the Jews were, were, were racists against the Samaritans because they were a mixed race. No, the, the tension and the, the, the animosity that was there was because the Samaritans had corrupted their worship. No doubt they had incorporated pagan things into their worship, but, but the religious or the, the, the worship hybrid that they came up with was all about this mountain, Gerizim. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, the woman says. And the Samaritans believe it. It was here at Gerizim, near Jacob's well, where, where Abraham and Jacob had built many altars and where Abraham had originally met Melchizedek after Melchizedek went into battle or after Abraham had gone into battle and brought the gifts back. And so they thought that Gerizim is the place. But the scriptures are clear that Jerusalem is the place. 
If you read 2 Chronicles chapter 6, it's very clear. Jerusalem was the place where God would put his name. The Psalms, it comes out in the Psalms. Psalm 78 verse 68 makes it clear that it's Jerusalem. But here's what the problem was. That carried no weight at all with the Samaritans because they only believed in the first five books of the Bible. They believed in the Pentateuch. They believed in the writings of Moses. So all of the prophets, the Psalms, Proverbs, and all of the historical writings, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Samuel, and so on, all of those books were disregarded by them. They were not considered to be holy scripture whatsoever. So the result was that the Samaritans, as Jesus put it, you worship what you do not know. You're worshiping Yahweh, the one true and living God, but you don't really know who he is. You don't really have a full revelation of him because you have disregarded these other Old Testament scriptures. And so their knowledge of the one true and living God was, was limited. But Samaritan worship was characterized by spirit, not by truth. Because when the Samaritans worshiped, they, they knew how to they knew how to worship. It was enthusiastic. It was emotional. It was exuberant. It was expressive. It was ecstatic worship. But verse 22, you worship what you do not know. It was ignorant worship. Their worship, as exciting as it was, was not informed by truth. Jesus said, but we Jews, we, we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. The Messiah is coming through the line of the Jews, salvation is from us. And we worship what we know because Jesus is saying, we believe the totality of the scripture that God has given to his people. But again, the Jews, even though they had the word of God, even though they had the truth and they worshiped by the truth, they didn't worship by spirit, in spirit. Because as he said, You're, you honor me with your lips, your hearts are far from me. Your hearts aren't engaged. Your worship is vain. So if I could give to you a simplistic summary then, the Samaritan worship was characterized by spirit, but it was void of truth. And Jewish worship was characterized by truth, but it was void of spirit. I have in my possession to this day a, a little booklet which has blessed me over and over again. It's a booklet written by the late A.W. Tozer. It's called Worship, the Missing Jewel of the Evangelical Church. It's a series of three sermons that uh, A.W. Tozer preached in Canada to the associated gospel churches at that time in a national assembly that they had, and it was later put into print. And in this little booklet, Tozer, in a very prophetic way, pointed out where the church was headed in terms of its worship. Now, again, this was written 1961, so, so keep that historical context in mind. And he characterized the, the worship of, of the average evangelical church in the early 1960s as barren and lifeless and powerless and cerebral. It's all about truth. Not surprising that in 1968, the charismatic movement broke out and everything became about worship in spirit. Tozer saw that saw it coming, that there was going to be a reaction to cerebral worship, all focused on truth without anything of the heart and the spirit. And that's exactly what Jesus was addressing here. Now, when Jesus says worship in spirit, he's not talking about the Holy Spirit. Rather, he's talking about the human spirit. He's talking about that non-material part of us. Look at verse 24. God is spirit. Now, this is not a reference to the Holy Spirit either. He's not saying God is the Holy Spirit. He's, rather, he's saying God is spirit. He's talking about the very essence of God. God is spirit. The essential nature of God is spirit. God is light. God is love. God is spirit. That's the essential nature of God. God is not material. And that means that God is not bound in any way to places or to things. And since he is essentially spirit, it follows then that our worship must be essentially a spiritual kind of worship. 
And friends, this is exactly what we see in the Old Testament writings. We see it especially in the Psalms. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. I lift up my soul. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul after you, O God. My heart thirsts for you, David says. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, that non-material part of me, bless his holy name. To worship in spirit means that then that, that, that our spirits are engaged, our emotions are there, our mind is there, our will is there in the act of worship itself. Let me ask you this, is your soul involved in worship on a Sunday morning? When you come to hear worship or whatever church you are from, are, 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 do, you, do you enter into, the, into God's gates, as it were, with thanksgiving, with praise in your heart? Your soul completely engaged. Your emotions, your mind, and your will, your soul is there. Worship in spirit. So how do we do this then? How do we worship in spirit? Well, let me suggest to you three things. We'll go through these quick because I want to get to the worship in truth. But first of all, to, be, to worship in spirit is we must be spiritually alive in order for that to happen. Remember in chapter 3, just before this encounter with the Samaritan woman, Jesus has an encounter with a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. Says to him, you must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. And he adds in John 3, verse 6, or verse, verse 5, flesh gives birth to flesh. And the Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit, gives birth to spirit. We are flesh. The only children we can produce are flesh. But God, the Holy Spirit, can give life to the spirits of men and women that are dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, and make them alive, quicken them, so that the spirit becomes alive to God. Jesus said we must be born again. We must be born of the Spirit. Now, in a sense, he's talking essentially about the same thing to this woman because in, in chapter 4, verses 10 through 14, he starts talking about the gift of God that he wants to give to her. He says, he says to the woman, if, 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 you, if you draw a woman out of, water out of this well, you will thirst again, but the water that I will give you, if you will drink that, you will never thirst again. And if you jump ahead to John chapter 7, where Jesus talks about rivers of, lowing water, flow, of living water flowing out of those who believe in him, he who believes in me out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water, John puts in brackets there. And by this he was speaking of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And so to offer the woman living water was to offer her the gift of the Holy Spirit himself. Do, do you... Do you have struggles with worship? I mean, there are lots of reasons why, why Christians can struggle in worship, but one question we must ask ourselves, if we're not fully engaged in worship, if we can go after, to one worship service after another and not really find our souls engaging with God, then we have to ask ourselves, am I born of the Spirit? Am I born of the Spirit? We must be spiritually alive. Number two, we must be spiritually assisted. Remember Jesus' words in John 15, I am the vine, you're the branches. Without me, you can do, you can do what? Lots of things? Nothing. Nothing. In Psalm 80, Asaph prays and he says, renew us and we will call on your name. We have to be renewed. Renewed, spiritually assisted by, by the Spirit. And we need assistance to actually worship God himself. Paul talks about this in Romans 8, where he talks about the, uh, when we pray and, and the ministry of the Spirit. And there are times when you and I pray, we want to worship God. We want to connect with God. We don't really know what to say. We, 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 we grasp for the words. And Paul says, but the Spirit himself, with words that cannot be uttered, in groanings is the word he uses, he's able to communicate. And we need that assistance in, in worship. 
In Philippians 3, Paul talks about us as being the true circumcision who worship God by the Spirit. By the Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to prompt us to worship, to motivate us in worship, to move our hearts in worship. And so we must seek the enabling of the Spirit even to worship God Himself. We must do this personally and corporately. Are you doing this? when you gather to worship God. We must be spiritually alive. We must be spiritually assisted. But we must also be spiritually active. We're not just to, to sort of sit back and wait for this to happen. You know, some, some, I'm going to get the fuzzies that come down out of heaven and all of a sudden, boom, I'm animated and I can worship. No, no, we, we need to act. We need to work out our salvation, the Bible tells us. It's God who works in us, yes, but we need to work out our salvation with trembling and fear. And I want to return to this thing about being spiritually active at the end of this message tonight because I think this is, has great application to us. Let's talk now about worship in truth. What is worship in truth? Well, there are many people who who read this phrase and conclude that what Jesus is talking about is truth in the sense of being severe, or sorry, not severe, sincere. Sincere. We, we need to be sincere in our worship. And, and certainly the Bible points that out, that, that that is true. We need to be sincere in our worship. Psalm 145 says that the Lord is near to all who call on him in truth. Psalm 24 says, Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? But he who has clean hands and a pure heart. So yes, there needs to be truth in our, in, in our inner being. There needs to be sincerity when we come to worship. Uh, one of the uh, well-known uh, contemporary hymns written by Matt Redman captures this, and he, he interprets this worship in spirit and truth to mean this sincerity of heart. You perhaps know the song, I will offer up my life in spirit and truth, pouring out the oil of love is my worship to you. In surrender, I must give my every part. Lord, receive the sacrifice of a broken heart. Jesus, what can I give? And so on and so on. The song goes on. And actually, much of the lyrics, the lyrics are, are excellent. And they're full of truth. But this line, I will offer up my life in spirit and in truth. When you take it in the context of everything else he says in that chorus, it's very clear he's talking about sincerity in worship. And unfortunately, Redmond has missed the point in that well-known hymn because that's not what Jesus is talking about here. The context is we Jews worship what we know, meaning we have the revelation of God. We have the truth about God. And in John's gospel, truth is used in two ways. Jesus prays in the garden, John 17, Lord, Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And Jesus says in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So in the Gospel of John, Jesus is truth. And the scriptures are truth. Jesus says we must worship in spirit and in truth. In other words, Jesus is saying we have to bind our subjective emotional experience with the objective factor of God's truth. Jesus says worship in spirit and truth. He is saying that we, that, that Jesus himself is saying that there needs to be a binding of the inward part of us with the, within the external framework of God's truth. So true worship involves a heartfelt response, a spirit response to truth, to God who has revealed, to the God who's revealed himself in his word and in his Son, Jesus Christ. So worship in spirit and truth means that our worship must be, first of all, guided by the written word of God, and secondly, grounded in the incarnate word of God. Let's talk about guided by the written word of God first. Our worship, then, needs to be within the totality of God's revelation in the word. Again, we come to the importance of Scripture in worship. Now, when we worship and worship, we're worshiping in spirit. That means that our minds are active in worship. 
You're thinking about God when you worship. And so your mind then, your, your spirit, needs to be surveying, as it were, truth about God, about the character of God, the greatness of God, the works of God, his personal blessings to you. And you need to make sure then that what you're thinking about God is accurate. It is possible for Christians to have inaccurate thinking about the God that they worship. And there's a lot of this today, and I, I, could, I was joking about three hours, but in reality, we could talk for three hours about this tonight. Let me try to illustrate this, if I can. If the God you are thinking about when you worship is all about law and justice, the holy God, if that's the totality of your thinking about the God who you worship, then what happens is there's no room for compassion. There's no room for love. And the result is, is your fixation on the law of God and on the justice of God. And he is a law-abiding God and a holy God. And he is a God of justice, of course. But if the totality of our thinking is there, then our worship will be tainted because it will be lopsided. Conversely, if, if, if all of your thinking about God is that God is love and God is kind and God is filled with tender mercy, and there is no thinking whatsoever about the holiness of God and the justice of God and the law of God and the wrath of God, then our worship becomes tainted in that we can become very flippant in the presence of God. Well, God's just this wonderful spiritual celestial buddy who comes alongside me and I'm not accountable to him and therefore there's no reverence really. And if God is all love and all kind and all tender, then we will never come to God through Jesus because we don't need Jesus. Because he is the one who redeems us from sin and Jesus is the one who sets us free from condemnation. And we won't need Jesus if, if God is just all of that. Because when God saves us, who does he save us from? He saves us from the true and living God. For our God is a consuming fire. When I say I am saved, that means I am saved from a lawful, holy, and just God. And I'm saved because in Christ, God so loved the world. Hallelujah. Let me put it this way. If we, if we reject, or if we neglect, or if we pervert certain truths about God, then our worship will not be acceptable worship. Has God revealed himself as a trinity of persons? Yes. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If we worship God and have no idea of a triune God in our worship, is our worship acceptable? Is Jesus Christ God in the flesh? Or is he just another created God, created by the Father at a point in time? You see, if you believe the latter, then your worship of Jesus Christ is not true worship. You are not worshiping in truth. If you believe when you worship the Father that he's just sort of the Father of everyone, regardless of where they stand with God, with Christ. And he is not specifically the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then you are not worshiping in truth. Or if you add to your worship something which the Bible does not warrant or command, then you are not worshiping in truth. A number of years ago, Andrea and I were vacationing in the Fenland Falls area, and we were at her, her brother's cottage. And he had this uh, CD of an Irish folk band. And um, I put the headphones on. I was the only one listening in. And I love Irish folk music. Uh, it's good music. 
It's very different from country music or southern gospel music. You know, and southern gospel music is just a, a, a Christian form of country music. And the only thing about country music that I can say is that it shouldn't be found in our country. Have I made some enemies tonight? Anyway, I'm listening to this, and, there, and actually there were a number of folk songs that were spiritual choruses that they were singing, and I'm just kind of taking it all in. And all of a sudden we get this beautiful song. The, the, the music was amazing. And uh, these are the words. Our voices ascending in harmony blending, for thus may our hearts turn, dear mother, to thee. Oh, thus may we prove thee how truly we love thee, Love thee, how dark without Mary life's journey would be. O Virgin most tender, our homage we render, thy love and protection, sweet mother, to win. In danger defend us, in sorrow befriend us, and shield our hearts from contagion and sin. Now the, the poetry is, is excellent, actually. The lyrics are quite gripping, and if, you could, if I could sing it for you with the music, uh, it was an amazing song, but it's not about truth. It's not worship in truth. And um, one, of the, one of the problems that we, we have with, with certain aspects, not all aspects, but certain as aspects of Roman Catholic worship is that Roman Catholicism incorporates into its worship elements that are not found in Scripture. It's not true. Now, there's much in Catholic worship that does. The, the Trinity's there and so on and so forth. There's Scripture reading. There, there's stuff that is, that is true. But then you get this error coming in. You see, it's a, it's a tainting of Christian worship. When I was a missionary in the, the, Phil, the Philippines in the, the 1980s, when, when people came to Christ, there were so many who came to Christ, actually, and we would have constant baptisms, but we would walk people through lessons before they were baptized. And most of them were, were being converted out of Roman Catholicism, a very, uh, if I could define it as a, a, a superstitious Catholicism that existed there. And um, the, the worship of images of Mary and Joseph and the saints and statues that they were completely devoted to, we would not baptize anyone until they had destroyed those things. Why? Because of what the Ten Commandments tell us. We should have no other gods before the one true and living God, and we should not worship or serve or bow down to anything that's made that is to look like anything that's in heaven, earth, or under the earth. Let me, let me read to you. Um, let, me, let me get into a more contemporary problem for us as the church today when it comes to worship and truth. You may not be aware of this, but there's a real slide, a backslide, a drift that's occurring right now within evangelicalism. And um, I'm going to quote to you, I'm going to read this to you. This is, comes from, from a chapel service at the Duke Divinity School in Durham, North Car Carolina from March 2022. Duke Divinity School is one of the 13 schools of the United Methodist Church in the United States. Listen to these words. These are the opening words to a worship service from the Duke... Divinity School Chapel. Good morning. The holy and queer one be with you. Welcome to worship. My name is Caroline Camp. I use she, they pronouns. I am the communications coordinator for Duke Divinity Pride, and I'm ecstatic to see this worship space so full and so vibrant with color. Thank you all for being here at the first ever Divinity Pride Worship Collaboration. We want to affirm everyone to be who they truly are, to step into the Holy One's fire that burns away all that says we are not good enough and refines us by the Pentecostal fire to be who exactly the great queer one calls us to be. Let the Spirit move you today. Lift up your hands and your voices and dance in whatever way is most freeing for you. Would you please stand and pray with me now the words found in your bulletin and on the screen. Strange one, fabulous one, fluid and ever becoming one. 
Do not allow us to make our ideas of you into an idol. You are as close to us as our own breath, and yet your essence transcends all that we can imagine. You are mother, father, and parent. You are sister, brother, and sibling. You are drag queen and trans man and gender fluid and capable of limiting your vast expressions of beauty. I was in a Methodist school in the United States just over a year ago. This is not worship in truth. This is not worship in truth. And these ideas are coming into Christian worship. And they must be rejected on the basis of the Word of God. Listen, worship is not just an emotional exercise with God words that induce certain feelings. No, worship is a response to God that is built on the truth. And this is the reason why Bible reading and Bible preaching must be indispensable to true worship. The Bible helps us and preaching helps us to focus our minds and to open our minds to facets of God's glory and God's will for us. The Bible actually contributes to the flow of our worship so that our worship glorifies God. Let me quote to you from Dr. John Stott, the late John Stott. He wrote this. Word and worship belong indissolubly to each other. All worship is an intelligent and loving response to the revelation of God because it is the adoration of his name. Therefore, acceptable worship is impossible without preaching, for preaching is making known the name of the Lord, and worship is praising the name of the Lord made known. Far from being an alien intrusion into worship, the reading and preaching of the word are actually indispensable to it. The two cannot, the, the two cannot be divorced. Indeed, it is their unnatural divorce which accounts for the low level of so much contemporary worship. Our worship is poor because our knowledge of God is poor. And our knowledge of God is poor because our preaching is poor. But when the word of God is expounded in its fullness and the congregation begin to glimpse the glory of the living God, they bow down in solemn awe and joyful wonder before his throne. It is preaching which accomplishes this, the proclamation of the word of God and the power of the spirit of God that is why preaching is unique and irreplaceable. To worship in truth means to be guided by the written word of God. Now it also means to worship in truth that we must be grounded in the incarnate word. So let's go back to John 4, because that actually is the dominant emphasis here. When Jesus says in verse 23, Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, he is actually referring to himself. The time has come. The Messiah has finally arrived. And in Jesus, everything is going to change when it comes to worship. A new era of worship is about to be ushered in, is in essence what Jesus is saying. And we know that Jesus Christ is God's final revelation to us. Listen to these words in the book of Hebrews, the opening words. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. By His Son. Jesus Christ is the truth. He is the final revelation of God. And so when Jesus says here, the time is coming and is now here, He is saying to this woman, you're talking about Gerizim and you're talking about Jerusalem as the where of worship. I'll tell you where the where of worship is. The where of worship is here. I have come. I am the place of worship. I am the where of worship. The place is Jesus, not Gerizim, not Jerusalem. Now, the Samaritans had been very, very upset because their, their temple on Gerizim had been destroyed. 
And that was part of the reason why they were so upset when the Jews wanted to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, because they wanted to have something just like the Jews. Jesus just cuts through all of this religious jargon and history that separated the two people. And he especially did it in John chapter 2 when he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And John adds in comments, in brackets, he was speaking of the temple, of his body, of his body. That Jesus Christ is the new temple. He is the new meeting place. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 12, I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. Jesus takes the place of the temple. Now I mentioned the book of Hebrews at the start of, of what I was sharing with you tonight. And if I can just go there for a moment, we, we won't actually turn in our Bibles to it. I'll just make reference to it. This is a major study, and we don't have the time uh, to get into this. But in chapter 8 of Hebrews, it's sort of information is given about Jesus building up to chapter 8. When you get to, chap to chapter 8, the writer to the, to the Hebrews points out that there was the true tabernacle in heaven... And there was another tabernacle on earth that was made by men. He keeps stressing this, made by man. Now, of course, God gave the directions as to how this tabernacle was to be built. There's all kind of intricate detail in the Old Testament writings of Moses as to what kind of material was to go into the tabernacle and so on. It's, it's all there. So it came from God, but it was made by man. But there's another tabernacle in heaven. That's the point he's making. He then goes on and he talks about the priest, the high priest of the past, and the sacrifice and the offerings and so on. But he's talking now about Jesus. And he, start, he, he says things that, that boggle the mind, that, that Jesus is the tabernacle. That he entered the tabernacle not made by human hands. And that he is the high priest who, who actually offers sacrifices. He offered himself. And he goes back to the Old Testament priests and he says this. They, this is um, chapter 8, verse 5. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow. Those are two key words. Copy and shadow of what is in heaven. And if you read your Old Testament, you, you, can, you can see it there. You, you see the priest offering the sacrifice, and you, you see the blood that is shed, the blood of lambs, the blood of goats, and bulls, and so on. You see the incense that rises up in worship in the holy place. It's all there. And there's a real altar there where sacrifices are made. But the writer to the Hebrews says, all that stuff, just a copy, just a shadow, a copy's are copies and shadows of the true thing. Now, many of you know that I've just recently retired, so one of the things I did was I went to Service Canada to get CPP and old age stuff. And when you go there, you gotta present your marriage license and your driver's license and all this kind of stuff. Well, I didn't give them my marriage, I gave them a copy of my marriage license. I gave them a copy of my driver's license, a photocopy. It's not the real license, it's just the photocopy. And that, that's what the writer's saying, is that all this Old Testament stuff, they're just copies, just shadows of the true, of the true. Listen to Hebrews 9, verse 24. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us, for us, in God's presence. All that other stuff, copies and shadows. But Jesus is the true. And therefore, the place doesn't matter anymore. The key new, new truth is that worship happens through Jesus. He poured out his blood for the forgiveness of sins. He gave his life to redeem sinners. He opened the way for sinners to be reconciled with God. He is the temple where we meet with God. And the Father seeks us like he sought the Samaritan woman. And he seeks us through Jesus. Remember the old hymn, To God be the glory, great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son. 
who yielded his life in atonement for sin and opened the life gate that all may go in. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory, great things he has done. Worship in truth is worship through Jesus and worship of Jesus, the one revealed to us in God's holy word. Now, I'm going to give you three quick takeaway points, which will only take about 20 minutes. Let's take all of what we've... This has been a teaching session tonight, so let's take all of this now. Let's bring it down to where the rubber hits the road in your life and my life. Number one, being faithful to the truth. I've already mentioned this. We have to be faithful to God's truth. But in worship, this is how it needs to look. Too much praying today to God in Christian circles, even in public worship, is generic praying. Oh God, we thank you for this. Oh God, we're glad you did this. Oh God, you're wonderful. It's oh God, oh God, oh God, or oh Lord, oh Lord, oh Lord. And I think that in, it, it, there's nothing wrong with that. Please don't misunderstand me. I don't, it, it's a difficult thing to criticize someone when they're praying because we want people to pray. But our praying and our worship needs to be Trinitarian. Do you follow what I'm saying? Using words like Father and Lord Jesus and Holy Spirit when we pray. Sometimes you'll hear people pray, Oh, Father, we just thank you that you died on the cross for us. No, he didn't. It's not true. The Father did not die. The Son died. Now, people get mixed up when they pray. So I'm not saying that they've committed a, her a heresy. But I am saying we should strive for theological and biblical accuracy when we pray. Not because we're trying to show off. Oh, I know theology. No, but because we want to glorify the God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. We praise the Father that He called us to the Son. And we praise the Son that He died on the cross for our sins. And we praise the Spirit because He gave us the life of Jesus. They each have distinct works within our salvation. And our praying needs to be Trinitarian in nature. Scripture is another thing. I've stressed it already. I need to stress it again. I don't know if you realize how little Scripture is used in many churches today. Very little reference to it. Our, our, our services of worship need to be, we need to be praying the Bible, singing the Bible, preaching the Bible. It needs to be language that incorporates the truth of God's Word. Our hymns, the songs we sing need to be rich in biblical truth. They also need to be Trinitarian in nature. And they need to be gospel and Christ-centered. Number two, bringing spirit and truth together. We need to bring our experience of worship into conformity with what is true about God. And let your spirit be authentically awakened and moved by that truth. Remember we talked about spiritually alive, spiritually assisted, spiritually act, active. And I didn't elaborate further on what the spiritually active part is, but here's what worshiping in spirit means, being active. It means three things. Number one, it means you're going to rouse your soul. You're committed to rousing your soul. You, you follow the language I'm, I'm using here? It's, it's like slapping yourself. I, I, need to, I need to engage. You need to rouse yourself. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul. Now, now, what is David doing in Psalm 103? Bless the Lord, O my soul. Who's he talking to? Is that a prayer to God? No, Psalm 103 is not a prayer to God. Psalm 103 is David talking to himself. Bless the Lord, O my soul. He's saying, soul, wake up, is what he's saying. He's rousing himself. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. David is recognizing that there is a sluggishness in his soul, in his spirit. There is a slowness of heart. 
In Psalm 42, he says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. He's talking to himself. He's rousing himself. Psalm 57, verse 8, Awake, my soul! It's time to wake up. And in other words, even when we don't feel like worshiping, we need to worship. And isn't David an example for us again in that? We read in 2 Samuel 12 that when his son conceived in Bathsheba, died, what did David do? What did he do? He got up from his mourning and he bathed himself and he went immediately to the temple of the Lord and he worshiped God in his grief. I'm sure humanly speaking, the last thing he felt like was giving praise to God. But he did so anyway because he knew how to rouse his soul. Rouse your soul. Secondly, we need to repent of a divided heart. I think this is the greatest burden that we all have as believers, that our flesh is in constant rebellion against the living God, against worshiping Him. The psalmist says in Psalm 86, verse 11, Give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. That, that's it. That's it. My heart, Lord, is divided. Lord, there are things within me. Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there's any offensive way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. We dishonor God with half-hearted worship. And so the rousing of your soul and the repenting of a divided heart is what you need to do in preparation for worship. And then finally, we need to focus our thoughts on truths about the, the triune God. Truths about the Father. Truths about the Son. Truths about the Holy Spirit. We need to discipline our minds to contemplate the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The person of the Father, the person of the Son, the works of the, of the, uh, and the person of the Spirit. The works of the Father, the works of the Son, and the works of the Spirit. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. He forgives me, He heals me, He redeems me, He crowns my life with Majesty and glory. And so there must be this deliberately turning away from the distractions of worship. And before we worship, we should be doing this. And when we, when we sing, we, we focus on truth, right? You know, some of the older hymns capture this, this thing of focusing the mind. And they capture it so beautifully in the lyrics. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. When I think, that's the mind, thinking, focusing thoughts on God. When I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned, unclean. The mind surveying the truth of God, the truth of the cross. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and I pour contempt on all my pride. Now that's worshiping in spirit and worshiping in truth. And you know what happens when you rouse your soul and you repent of a divided heart and you focus your thoughts on the living God, even when you don't feel like it? You eventually find your spirit catches up with your voice. And you have a time of worship like you never imagined you could and which you foolishly would have avoided if you had not disciplined yourself. 
And finally, we must become true worshipers of God. I'm sure most of us here are believers in the Lord Jesus. Perhaps all of us are. But many of us could be like this Samaritan woman, broken. She knew that the answer was in God. She was religiously confused, spiritually confused. She was morally confused. But her first act of worship was to embrace Jesus Christ. And when she embraced him, she found the truth. And she came to the true temple. And that is what all of us should, should do. Father in heaven, thank you for the word that the Spirit gave to the apostles and prophets, for the gospels, the records that we have, for this incredible conversation that Jesus had with this woman about worshiping in spirit and in truth. Thank you for the things that we can glean from it today. And we pray that the Holy Spirit will take now what we have learned and apply it to each of our hearts. For Jesus' sake, amen.